Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Saving Grace, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Here's Pastor Nick. Whitefields Community Church. We're glad you're here with us this Sunday morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to begin our message this morning by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning as we study it, Lord, would you make it alive in our hearts? Would you apply it to our lives? And Lord, may we not only be hearers of your word, may we be doers of it also. Lord, we pray that this morning you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see glorious things in your word. And we pray that, Lord, as a result of what we hear and what we read today, we would praise you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever been really anxious about something or, or like really worried or really stressed out? And then you talk to somebody and they gave you a piece of sage wisdom and advice, right? Just a stroke of genius. Here's what they told you. Don't worry. Like, don't be stressed out. I know you're anxious, but don't be anxious. And problem solved, right? Because that's all you needed to know was just, oh, okay, so I should just not be worried, and then I won't be worried anymore. Of course that doesn't work, though. That's like the worst advice you can give a person who's stressed out is, hey, don't stress out, because you're not giving them any tools to help them not be stressed out. You're not giving them anything to help them feel differently. And that's the thing about our feelings, right? A lot of times we can't choose our feelings. We can't turn them on and off like a switch. Now, I saw something the other day that said that if you stress out a lot, the reason you shouldn't stress out is because if you stress out, it'll kill you. And I read that and I thought, well, that really stresses me out because before I was only worried about my problems and now I'm worried about being stressed out because that's going to kill me. So that just gave me one more thing to be stressed out about. And you know what's interesting is that the Bible actually tells us something that at first glance kind of feels like that. Like it tells us, to love others. It tells us that we're commanded to love God, that we're commanded to love our neighbors, our our fellow human beings. We're commanded to love our spouses. We're even commanded to love our enemies. But how do you do that? Because if you loved your enemies, they probably wouldn't be your enemies, would they? Right? Like traditional wedding vows, for example, include this, this statement that you promise to love this person for the rest of your life until death do you part. But how often do we hear stories of people who are like, I used to love this person and now I don't. Like I fell out of love with this person. Or I just, when I think about this person, I don't feel any any warm, fuzzy feelings of love towards them at all. Or maybe I used to love this person, but now I love this person instead. 
How can anyone promise then that they're going to love the same person for the rest of their life? Because if you wait 10 years from now, what if your feelings change? Here's the crazy thing about marriage. Any of you who have been married for any amount of time know this is true. You're no longer married to the person that you married originally, right? Because people change. And some of us, some of you know exactly what that's like, right? The person you married was young and attractive and fit, and they had dreams and aspirations. And that simply just doesn't describe the person that you're married to now, right? They might have the same name. They might have the same social security number, but they're a completely different person now than the person that you married years ago. And maybe you loved that person that you married, but the person you're married to now not as much, right? And, and so this idea of love at first sight that's so popular in our culture, it, it insinuates that love is just this, this kind of fleeting thing that comes or goes and we have absolutely no control over it. And, or how about this? What if, what if there's somebody in your life who you can't stand, but then you read the Bible and the Bible tells you that you have to love them? The problem is you don't love them, right? And, and so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just pretend that you like them, pretend that you love them, or just fake it till you make it? Or, or when the Bible tells you to love God, but when you think about God, you don't exactly feel love, right? Maybe you feel indifference or maybe you feel something else like frustration or resentment. Maybe things have happened in your life and you wonder why. If there is a God, then, then why did this happen? Why didn't he make things happen differently? And it brings up another question. How do I know that God loves me? And even if he does love me today, how do I know that he's not going to just stop loving me at some point in the future if I mess up? And of course, the answer to all of these questions is what the Bible teaches us, and that is that love is not just a fleeting feeling. Love is an action. Love is an action. That's why God can instruct us and command us to love our neighbors, love our spouses, love our enemies even, because love isn't just a feeling that comes and goes and we have no control over it. It's a posture that we take towards other people or towards a thing or towards a person. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or in, or in talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. And here's what inevitably happens, invariably happens. As you start doing that, as you start walking in these outward actions of love toward another person, what happens is that you find that your inward feelings towards that person begin to change as well. See, as a result of acting in a way that you didn't act before, you begin to feel in a way that you didn't feel before. And as a result of loving that person with your actions, you begin to feel feelings of affection for them as well. So you see, here's the thing about feelings, right? We can't just change the way we feel by flipping a switch or telling ourselves to just knock it off. But there are things that we can do which can affect how we feel about things and how we think about them. For example, if you introduce new information to a person, it can often change how they think or feel. For example, if you're scared about something, but then I introduce some new information, that might change your feeling about that thing. And what we have in the gospel, in, in the good news of Jesus Christ, is both of these things. It's both of these things. And so the title of today's message is, Love is an Action. And in our text today, what we're going to see is three things that prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that God loves you. But as we look at these things, we're also going to see the implications of them. And what we're going to see is how these actions provide us with new information that changes how we think and how we feel about many different areas of our lives. So let's begin by looking at these things. God's actions of love that change everything. Number one, we see in our text that he justifies. This is his first action of love 
that he shows us. He justifies us. We see this in, in the first verse of the, of the text. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified. Now, this is what we've been talking about for the past several Sundays as we've been studying through the book of Romans. We've been going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And this is what it's been all about so far is this word justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal status that is bestowed upon you by decree. And what we have in our, we have a saying in our culture, don't we? We have a saying that nobody's perfect. We all kind of accept that. We just nod our heads. Yeah, nobody's perfect. That's true. But you know, there's also a story behind that. There's a story behind my imperfection. There's a story behind your imperfection. See, it's not just that we mess up sometimes and we fail. That's part of it. But beyond that, we also do things that hurt other people. We do things where we, we've sinned against other people and against God. And in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, what we saw is that, that Paul took us into God's courtroom, so to say. And he showed us the evidence that proves that we're guilty, that we have a debt before God that we cannot pay. And, and we talked about that come judgment day, it's not going to be good for us. We're, it's dead man walking. We stand condemned. There's nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't be good enough to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves by being more religious and more adherent to, to religious ceremonies and practices. What's done is done. And the righteous judge of all the earth has handed down our sentence. But... The good news, the great news, the outstanding news, the unbelievable news is that that very same judge has stepped down from his judge's platform and he has come and he stood beside us and he put his arm around us and he took the judgment that we deserve. That same judgment that he himself pronounced upon us, he came and took it upon himself in order that we might be justified. See, Jesus Christ, he came to this earth. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death then that you should have died on the cross in your place. And as a result, your conviction order, your execution order, it's like someone took it and they took one of those big rubber stamps and they pounded it down and it says paid in full. And then they, they went over to your record, the record of your, your good deeds and your bad deeds. And they took another big rubber stamp and they stamped that one and it says justified. See, justified is a legal status. We tend to think only in two categories, right? We tend to think that people are either guilty or they're innocent. But here he introduced us to a third category, justified. In other words, you were guilty, but someone else stepped in and paid the price for you. And your record has been cleared. In fact, not only do you have a clean record, but he's also given you a positive record. Imagine if you were on death row and one day they come to your cell and they say, it's time to go. And so you're like, I guess this is it. But instead of walking you to your death, they actually walk you outside. They take off the handcuffs and they say, here you go. You're free. Go on. Because see, someone else showed up and they took your death penalty for you. They paid the price for you, and now you're free. And now the question is, what are you going to do now? How do you live now on the outside, right? How do you live now as a free person, given a second chance? That's what the rest of the book of Romans is going to be about from this point on. How to live on the outside. How to live as a free person with this new life that you've been given in Jesus. And that's why he starts verse 1 with the words, therefore and since. Those are transitionary words. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 9.15 and 11 a.m. 
If you have missed any part of this message or past messages, you can find them all at BeSetFreeRadio.com. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Whenever you see that word, therefore, what it means is that he's taking everything that he set up until this point, and he says, okay, you got that right? Now we're going to step up from that, and we're going to say, because that's true, now here's the implications of that. Here's what happens next. So he says, therefore, since you have been justified. Now, if you're a grammar nerd or a grammar Nazi, you'll notice something in that phrase. It's written in what we call the passive voice. I'll just tell you a quick story. I'm a bit of a grammar nerd and, uh, and a grammar Nazi myself. I get really upset when people use contractions the wrong way. So my wife, Rosemary, you know, I never thought that that would benefit me, but my wife, Rosemary, when I first met her, she actually had a crush on this other guy who was a friend of mine. But he had one fatal flaw. He was a terrible speller and he had terrible grammar and punctuation. So they started writing letters back and forth. And she said, you know what? I can't do this. This guy, he can't write. He can't spell. His grammar's terrible. Now, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of strengths, but I do have one. And that is that I'm super good at spelling and grammar. And so all you grammar Nazis out there, take this to heart. Never forget this. Someday God could use that for good in your life. Like when you're reading the Bible, for example, and you read this phrase and it says you have been justified. And you say, you know what? I think that's a passive voice. You're absolutely right. It's a passive voice. The passive voice speaks not of what you do as the active voice does, right? You do something. No, the passive voice speaks of something that's been done to you, right? You didn't do it yourself, but it was done for you. It was done unto you. And that's what we have here with the gospel. He says, this is what Jesus did for you. You didn't justify yourself. You didn't make yourself right with God. It was done for you by Jesus, not by believing and trusting in yourself, but you receive it. How? By faith. That's what we talked about last week. You receive it by faith, not by trusting in yourself, not by believing in yourself, but by trusting in and believing in Jesus, by relying on and clinging to him and what he did for you on the cross. Then verse six, it tells us this. We're going to skip down to verse six. Here's what it tells us about his justification we've received. He goes on and he says, for while we were still weak, unable to help ourselves at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Well, look, I don't want to scare you, but they're surrounding you. They're sitting all around you right now. In fact, you yourself are one of them. He died for you. Now you might ask the question, have you ever thought about this? Is there anything or anyone for whom I would be willing to give my life, for whom I would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice? Check out what it says then in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a person might die for a good person. In other words, there aren't probably a lot of people out there, there probably aren't a lot of people out there who you'd be willing to give your life for, who you'd be willing to die for, who you'd be willing to lay it all down for. But if there were, those would probably be people that you care deeply about. So check out what it says next, the most incredible verse in this whole section. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, it says in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love. He proves his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever doubt that God really loves you, that God really cares about you, then you need to pay attention here. 
All you have to do is look to the cross and all your questions will be answered because on the cross, Jesus gave his life for you, the ultimate sacrifice. He doesn't just say that he loves you. He proved it in the most ultimate way by giving his life for you. One of my other favorite verses in the Bible is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before he's going to the cross. And in his last kind of long talk that he has with them, it's written down there for us over the course of four chapters. And there in chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would give his life for his friends. And then the very next day, what did he do? He did exactly that. He gave his life for who? For his friends. Do you realize that that includes you. That's the category that he puts you in. He calls you his friend. See, we who were once rebels and enemies of God, he has reached out across the chasm. He has performed the greatest act of love so that we could become friends. And so that's the action of love that we see in this text. He justifies us. And, and But now let's talk about the implications. So the action is he justifies us. And we see in this text three implications of the fact that we've been justified. Number one is that we have peace with God. We see that in verse one. Having, now we have peace with God because we've been justified. See, having peace with God is not the same thing as having the peace of God. In another part of the Bible, in Philippians chapter four, Paul talks about something called the peace of God. He says that may the peace of God rule in your hearts and minds. May it guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But see, the peace of God is kind of a sense of calm, is a sense of confidence that you can have even in the midst of turbulent times because you're confident in God and his sovereignty and his love for you. But the peace with God is something different. See, peace with God insinuates that at one time we were not at peace with God. In fact, the Bible talks about this elsewhere. It says that apart from Christ, we were at enmity with God. In other words, we were at war with God. And what he's saying is that now, because of what Jesus did, the war is over. See, until you surrender your life to God, here's what happens. As, as you're living your life apart from Christ, here's what you're doing. You are living at enmity with God. In other words, there's this war. There's this struggle going on. Oh, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be sovereign over this life, right? It's kind of like two countries arguing over a disputed territory, both of them laying claim to it and saying, this is mine. We rule in this place. And, and we do that with our own lives. We say, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want to do with it, right? You can't tell me what to do with my life. You can't tell me what to do with my body. This is me, and I have sovereignty over my life and my body. I do with it what I will. And yet there's God on the other side saying, no, I created you, and you belong to me. And so there's this battle going on. Who's going to be in charge? Like two countries fighting over a disputed territory. I read a story really uh, last night, really interesting story that I thought I got to include this. See, there's an island in the Pacific. And during World War II, Japan occupied this island. In 1945, the Japanese military sent a small group of soldiers to defend this island in the Pacific. And the war ended a few months later. But see, when Japan surrendered, but these soldiers stayed on this island and they refused to give up. And years went by, years and years, decades even. And these soldiers eventually died. They died of sicknesses and illnesses, except for one. One guy finally surrendered, and he surrendered, you know when? 1974. This guy surrendered. 
29 years after the war had already ended. While the rest of Japan was enjoying peace and economic prosperity, this group of soldiers held out for almost 30 years, suffering, fighting malaria, right? Having sicknesses and diseases. Why? Totally unnecessary. They refused to surrender, even though the war was already over. See, it was completely unnecessary. The Japanese military would even send people out to them, messengers and other soldiers to tell them, hey, the war's over. You need to give up. But every time anybody got close, they would attack them. They would shoot at them. They refused to accept this. They refused to surrender. And, and they would attack the messengers until finally this last guy, he got just so tired of fighting this unnecessary war that was already over. He got so tired of resisting all these messengers that he said, fine. And he laid down his weapon and he came home. And isn't that just a picture of so many of us, and this way that so many of us are. We refuse to surrender our lives to God, even though because of Jesus, the war is over. It's totally unnecessary. Jesus declared, it is finished. But instead of enjoying peace and life in him, you're still holding out, right? You're still digging in your heels, refusing to give up control of your life because you're afraid of what you might lose or what you might give up. And it's not like you're happy. You're miserable the whole time, like those soldiers on that island, but you're still not willing to give up. And maybe some of you, even today, listening to this, that's exactly where you're at today. You're like that Japanese soldier. You know that God's calling you. You know that he's declared the war is over. It's finished, but you're still holding out. You're still refusing to surrender your life to him. You're holding out. You're, you're hostile towards the messengers he sends you. I want to tell you today, you can stop fighting this pointless battle. The moment you do that, the moment you surrender to him, you know what he'll do? He'll embrace you. He'll forgive your sins. He'll crown you with righteousness. He'll treat you as a son and as a daughter. And I pray that all of us would come to that point of full surrender and enjoying the fact that we have peace with God because of what Jesus did for us. The next thing we see, the next implication of the fact that we've been justified is this. Now we have access to his grace. I read another story recently about a young boy who had gone to Buckingham Palace. This was several years ago, um, but he had gone to Buckingham Palace, uh, a British kid, and, and somehow he had gotten this idea in his mind. And, and you know how kids are. If they get an idea in their mind, it's hard to get it out. So he got this idea in his mind that if he went to Buckingham Palace, that he was going to see the queen. So they went on the whole tour. They did the whole thing. And when the boy found out that he wasn't going to be able to meet the queen, he got upset and he started to cry and, and get, you know, you know, visibly upset. Well, Prince Charles happened to find out about this. And so Prince Charles said, well, I'm going to go talk to this boy. And he went to this boy and he told him, you come with me. And he led that boy back behind all the ropes and behind all the doors. And he led him right into the presence of Queen Elizabeth and introduced him and said, there you go. Here's the queen. See, that's what we have with Jesus. We have Jesus is that one who gives us access to the Father. It's that backstage pass that gives us access to God where we stand in his grace. And notice that it says that we stand in his grace. That's a position. It's a new standing that we have before God in Christ because of what he's done for us. We stand in his grace. You know what it means to stand in his grace, what that standing means for us? First of all, it means you don't have to prove anymore that you're worthy of God's love. You don't have to prove that you're worthy of God's love. It means that you can stop trying to keep a scorecard 
right? To prove the fact that you've done enough for him to love you and accept you and bless you, that you've done enough. Or maybe when you haven't done enough, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not adequate. No, the account has been settled by Jesus once and for all. Secondly, you know what it means? It means that God calls you his friend. That's what it means to stand in grace. And thirdly, it means that the door of access to God and to his grace is permanently open to you. See, sometimes like when I'm working, I have an office at home and I'll shut my door when I need to focus and get some work done. But I've told my kids, hey, you know what? Even if that door's shut, it's always open to you. You can always come in no matter what I'm doing. I'm, you're not distracting me. I'd love to see you. And so my kids know open door policy. If they want to come talk to dad, anytime they're welcome to come and talk to dad. And that's the way it is with us as children of God. We have this open door policy where God says, anytime you're welcome to come in and, and and receive freely from my grace and be in my presence. Next, we, we, the final implication that we see in this text, verse 2, we have the hope of the glory of God. Verse 9 tells us that we have been justified by Jesus' blood. And as a result of that, we are saved from the wrath of God. We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, that God isn't emotionally detached when it comes to sin, but he's emotionally engaged. And because of that, he doesn't just feel bummed out when we sin, but he actually feels upset. He feels wrath. And so in Jesus, he took the wrath of God on our behalf. So we no longer have to fear the wrath of God, but what instead it says, verse two, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the hope of heaven. You know, hope is defined as a happy certainty. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have two in-person services on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 11 a.m. And both services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via chat to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. If you would like to support Be Set Free Radio or the ministry of Whitefields Church in Longmont with a donation, you can send a check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or give a financial gift online at whitefieldschurch.com.